The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. How wonderful it is to know that we are no longer in the flesh, even though the flesh remains in us. For it is the knowledge that we have been freed from the flesh by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and our union with him in his resurrection, which makes it possible for us to enter into the path of liberty from the aroused passions of that flesh in a condition that is dominated by the new life of our risen head. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Impotence of the Law. A strange thing happened when alcohol was made illegal in the early 20th century. Many people who drank little or no alcohol before prohibition began to defy the law and consume more alcohol. Imposing law does not make people righteous. It only inflames our fleshly desires and incites us to sin. How can sound biblical instruction help us better understand the law, our sinfulness, and God's method for salvation and holy living? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verse 5. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Impotence of the Law. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee for Thy faithfulness, for it is the fruit of Thy grace, and we recognize that if Thou dost deal with us or use us, it is because of Thine own nature of love. May that grace break us down, that we may know the joy of daily triumph over sin, and that our lives, lived in Thy righteousness, may be to the praise of Thy glory. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying in the Epistle to the Romans and come today to chapter 7 and verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The Apostle now announces in a single verse the whole great struggle which will be described as this chapter unfolds. Now if we are to understand it fully, we must realize that Paul had in mind the fact that the infant church at Rome was composed in large proportion of Jewish citizens who were living in the capital of empire 
either as a result of the partial dispersion of the people which had already taken place, or through the large movement of men of commerce to the center of the commerce of the world. These had been the founders of the church at Rome, which existed for years before any apostle had come anywhere near the capital. And these believers had to be instructed in their true relationship to the gospel and their consequent freedom from the law under which they had been born. We will take our text phrase by phrase and seek to understand its parts in order to understand the whole. I read the text again, Romans 7, 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now first, Paul points out that he himself, as well as the ones to whom he wrote, were once in the flesh, but are now no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. It is evident then that he does not use the phrase in the flesh to mean in the body. We are all of us in the body and will be so until the moment of our physical death. Being in the flesh is something quite different. Here we have summarized in three simple words the whole deadly state of the individual who has not yet been born again. It is not necessary for us to treat this at length. We go back to the third chapter and recall the gathering into one paragraph of the several quotations from the Old Testament which describe the state of the man who is out of Christ. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now this is what it means to be in the flesh. Those who are unsaved are still in the flesh. Those who are saved were in the flesh until the moment when we were made alive in Jesus Christ. Being in the flesh is a moral state, a condition as seen through the eyes of God. The proof that it is the opposite of the state of the redeemed is in a verse which we shall reach in the next chapter. For we read in Romans 8, 9, Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. So being in the flesh is the opposite of being in the Spirit. We were all in the flesh, but some of us are no longer in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, even though the flesh is still in us. The next section of our text describes the inward stubbornness, the inward corruption of our fleshly nature, and speaks of the violent reactions which occur in that nature when it is crossed. Let me set this text before you as it is presented in several different translations. The King James Version states, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. It was the revised standard version which we quoted at the outset of this study. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members 
to bear fruit for death. The Roman Catholic confraternity version is identical with the RSV. Weymouth reads, For while we obeyed our lower natures, sinful passions evoked by the law were always at work in the organs of our bodies to fructify and result in death. Now most of the other translations furnish nothing beyond these. Philip's paraphrase may make it more clear, for he says, While we were in the flesh, the law stimulated our sinful passions and so worked in our nature that we became productive for death. Now let us illustrate this thought by certain examples. Taking, first of all, an example that has been experienced in our American history, for during the last half of the 19th century and the first two decades of the 20th century, the United States was, on the whole, a sober nation. Practically no women consumed alcohol, and the number of confirmed alcoholics among women was infinitesimal. There were men who drank liquor, and a certain percentage were totally mastered by it. But there were vast reaches of our population which lived in total abstinence, and another large percentage that lived in simple temperance. And then it was that certain misguided reformers conceived the idea of passing a law to prohibit the manufacture and sale of liquor. The idea, of course, is one that is anti-Christian when seen in the light of the whole Bible. Now, don't rush away from your radio and say that I am giving license to people to follow their own will. That is not true. The Christian has absolutely no right whatsoever to make laws for the conduct of those who are not born again. To hold such a thought is a total misreading of the position of the believers in the midst of a world which crucified Christ. How unjust we would think it if they wanted to make a law that would force us to do something that was contrary to our conscience. Even if it were possible to restrain an unsaved man in his conduct, you would do no more than create in him a rage against your law or a pride in his own sense of achievement in living up to some code. The church should not attempt to force a Jew to keep Sunday or to force an unregenerate man to abstain from his lusts for liquor and other body cravings. Our message is something quite different, and our method is totally alien to such a procedure. And I would like to point out in passing that during the quarter of a century, when the misguided church turned away from the true gospel of Christ to a social gospel of moral uplift, the liberal theologians stole the theological seminaries and robbed the church of leadership for the true paths of righteousness. It may be well for paint manufacturers to say that if you save the surface, you will save all, but that is certainly not true if termites are boring up the length of a beam. And so it is that any gospel which attempts to paint the surface rather than deal with the heart is alien to the true principles as set forth in the word of God. But finally, the great heresy reached its culmination and the prohibition law was passed. What was the result? Tens of thousands of people who had never tasted liquor in their life immediately found it smart to talk about circumventing the law. The innate stubbornness of the flesh manifested itself at once. Sinful passions were aroused by the prohibition law. Appetites for liquor which had never before existed were created 
as fruit of the mad hatred at being told that an individual could not do exactly as he pleased. The percentage of abstainers who moved into the number of temperate drinkers was greatly increased, while the percentage of abstainers and temperates who moved to wild drinking that produced alcoholism was increased beyond imagination. We thus have a national illustration of our Bible text. It was beyond question the creation of the law of Moses, which stimulated the sinful passions, which in turn brought forth the deathly fruit. Now follow this example with two illustrations taken from the lives of individuals. We read from time to time of those who are called hardened criminals. And we ask what it is that hardened them. And the answer is to be found in the inwardness of our text. They are conditioned from childhood to having their own way. This is the prime desire of the flesh. We read in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. Now, as a child grows to maturity, its lawless nature, uncurbed till then, will urgently seek to continue in the path of its own desires. Suddenly, an individual discovers that he does not have money enough to buy all the things he wants. So, he reaches out to take what belongs to somebody else. At once, he's branded a thief, unwilling to toil long hours for amounts that are small in comparison with that which he can steal in a few moments, he becomes a thief. He might answer that he would not have become a fugitive from justice if he had been allowed to have everything that he wanted. But it is the fact that he runs against the law that brings out the worst in him, and he determines to have his own way at all costs. Thus he is hardened by that law which has sought to curb him. Finally, he is locked up, or if he has taken some human life that stood in his way, he will be put to death. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law went to work in his nature to bring forth fruit unto death. Now take another case, which may seem different because the individual concerned is a member of polite society. We'll choose for our example a woman, such a one who may be cultured, refined, educated, or even religious. Now the religion, of course, will be some form that is an opiate and which will allow the individual to do as she pleases. Culture, which is the training and curbing of the old fleshly nature by standards set up by society for its own protection, may produce a being who seems admirable from many points of view. But look more closely. Because this person is in an economic state which makes it unnecessary to steal, she is considered honest. Because she conforms to the artificial standards of what is done, and avoids those things which are not done, she is honored and respected. Yet underneath, there is a wantonness which is parallel to the hardness that is in the criminal. Someone crosses her will, and her rapier tongue will quietly murder the reputation of the offender. Malicious gossip can wear a mink coat, can get a college degree, or go to church. Or the desire of the flesh may manifest itself in a number of other ways. It suffices only that the will of the individual be crossed. I once had to do with a problem between two people. The husband complained that the wife nagged and was most impatient. And in the course of the conversation, she naively stated that she never in her life had lost her temper 
if she had her own way. She did not realize what temper really was and what nagging and impatience really are. These are aroused by that which thwarts the will of the individual, and these passions, thus aroused, bring forth the deathly fruit. Now, we have demonstrated from these three examples, one national and two individual, the inner nature of our text. Paul is speaking not to the Gentile members of the Roman church, but to those who were one with him in his national origin. He reminds them that the coming of the law to their ancestors at the time of Moses did for Israel nationally what the coming of prohibition did for the United States nationally. But the rebellion which was called forth by the Mosaic law was much more widespread than that which was caused in this country by our blue laws. For the law of Moses extended to every thought and action of the human heart. In the last analysis, it is shown in its summary that the individual is called upon to love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. Now, anyone out of Christ who thinks that he is even remotely approaching the fulfillment of such a law is woefully ignorant of the holiness of the, that law's demands and of his own far distance from its holy accomplishment. For hundreds of years, the human race had lived without the presence of the law of God. True, there was a general sense of right and wrong in some fields of thought. The Code of Hammurabi and the even older Code of Lipidishtar show that men had made laws for the protection of their property and for the ordering of their lives, but always in a framework which allowed the complete fulfillment of self-will within the limits prescribed by such codes of law. But the giving of the law of God was quite a different thing. The laws of men might be described as a small fence at the edge of a precipice which stood as a reminder of danger beyond, but which allowed the individual to roam in any other direction at will. But the law of God was not such a fence, but four walls which limited a man in every direction. Yes, it was a chain that held him to one spot. It was a yoke upon his neck. Peter reminds the disciples in the first church council that this yoke had been upon their necks and that neither they nor their fathers had possessed the strength to carry it. It was indeed intolerable. The coming of the law of God acted upon the hearts of the men of Israel like the falling of the first rope on the neck of a wild horse. The cowhand in the rodeo who attempts to ride a bucking bronco or a steer can feel beneath his hands the quivering rage of the creature who does not wish to be brought under the will of man. Such heavings and buckings are nothing compared to that which the human heart felt when suddenly the law of God came into play and restrained man in every part of his being, touching his body, his mind, his spirit, his will, his emotions, and his very soul. Before the law came, it was possible for God to deal with men without any reference to the demands made by that divine law. But as soon as the law came, it set in motion all the aroused passions of the Adamic nature. The life of the flesh reacted like gunpowder when a lighted match is cast into it. 
Finally, having seen the meaning of this verse as it applies to those to whom the law was given, let us consider it briefly as it affects men and women today. It can readily be seen that it has no effect upon the mass of the world's population that is outside of Christ. It cannot be applied to Mohammedans, Buddhists, or American pagans, whether the latter are baptized or unbaptized. But I want you to think of its effect upon the vast number of men and women within Christendom upon whom the attempt was made to fasten the law in spite of all of the teaching of the New Testament. When the church age began, the majority of the believers were Jewish. The New Testament had not been written, and the converts did what comes naturally. They settled back into the ways in which they had lived throughout the early part of their life. They should not have acted naturally, of course, for a Christian is a new creation and should act supernaturally. The result was that there was a tremendous conflict in the first decades of church history. This reached its climax at Antioch when Paul rebuked Peter to his face because he was still clinging to the law as a principle of Christian living. The book of Galatians sets forth the conflict and also the true doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith and apart from the works of the law. But in spite of this victory in Paul, the great natural tendency of man to do something for himself brought him back under law, and the practice of the whole church became legalistic. By the end of the Dark Ages, the entire legal system had been pasted back over the life of the church and those who believed in grace alone were the small remnant whose appearances throughout the centuries are like single stars peeping through a cloudy sky. When the reformers emerged after the Renaissance, they made a valiant attempt to move the church back into the path of biblical truth, but there was a failure to understand the nature of true grace, and the liturgies of the Protestant churches were all established on a legalistic basis. And then again, it must be understood that the Bible teaching, which sets forth the importance of the law, is not given with any thought of releasing an individual from the holiness demanded by it. In fact, the law must be abolished in order to let grace do the job that law cannot do. The situation might well be set forth in the following analogy. You're driving along a highway and come upon the scene of an accident. A truck has been involved in a collision and you hear that there's a man in the wreckage. Half a dozen men from passing cars place themselves shoulder to shoulder, take a firm hold on the bumper, and start to lift. They tug and tug and pull until you can see the veins standing out in their necks. But they are not able to accomplish that which must be done if the man is to be freed. And yet, because of his necessity, they keep straining at the impossible task. Finally, a wrecker arrives and drives into position to hoist the weight of the disabled truck but the only available spot to which the wrecker can attach its hoist is that bumper at which the men are tugging. If the wrecker is to do its work, the men must get out of the way. If they persist in monopolizing the place, the wrecker cannot get in to do its work. There is no moral charge against these men, but their strength is insufficient for the task. It is thus that we seek to get the law out of the way, in order to let grace take hold of the need. The important thing is to get the job done, 
and God has declared that there is only one way in which it can be done. There must be the clear recognition that the law came in with no result other than stirring up the desperate passions of the sinner. The law had no power to bring holiness into the life. The law must be swept aside if the Lord Jesus is to do his work in grace. Then the righteousness demanded by the law can be fulfilled in the believer. Then the workings of the flesh will no longer be fruit unto death in a man who lives in the flesh, but fruit unto life in a man who lives in the spirit. Our union with Christ in grace is the only way whereby this life of triumph can be experienced. And our God and Father, we pray thee that thou shalt bless the truth in this hour, that thy Holy Spirit shall take it to hearts and bring men face to face with their need and with thy supply. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Any system of salvation or sanctification by keeping the law is antithetical to the gospel of grace. Grace must do what the law cannot do in enabling God's people to live in true holiness and righteousness. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse, entitled, The Impotence of the Law. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Impotence of the Law, or simply ask for message number R7-9. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, The Cost of Discipleship. Although salvation is a free gift of God, it does not come cheaply. It costs Jesus His life to redeem us, and it will cost us something if we are serious about submitting to His Lordship. This free booklet will show you that as pilgrims in this life, we must count the cost of discipleship, learn to travel light, and realize that following Jesus radically changes our relationships. Discipleship is demanding, but the Lord promises that He is always with you. Ask for your free copy of The Cost of Discipleship when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support or further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, 
including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.